You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers. This is an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a volunteer with the LLS. I'd like to thank you, all of you, so much for joining us for this episode. Today we'll be joined by Dr. James Ferran, who is a consultant and associate professor in the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center in Jacksonville, Florida. James, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to join you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Your credentials are MD and FRCPC, so I'd just love to hear a little bit about what is FRCPC and uh, just a little bit about your training. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I'm originally Canadian and grew up in Western Canada, so I went to medical school at the University of Manitoba. And even though I did my residency in Boston and my fellowship in Boston, I then did a second fellowship in the United Kingdom and some research training. I went back and took my Canadian qualifying exams, my specialty exams. So the Royal College of Physicians is sort of like the ABIM in Canada. So that yep. makes me a fellow of the Royal College of, of Physicians of Canada. So that's that's just the specialty certification. All right. All right. Well, very good. Thank you. As an introduction, I want to say a few words. Myelodysplasia is something, obviously, that's been talked about for many, many years. The descriptions, at least when, when I was a fellow, were very much clinical ones based on blood counts and on morphology. And obviously, the field has evolved tremendously in terms of uh, the diagnostic uh, menu that we have. So really, as an updated discussion, this is a wonderful opportunity to talk about myelodysplasia. And so I wanted to ask, and at least uh, as of now in 2020, how would you define MDS? And what do you see as that menu for making the diagnosis and understanding a patient's problems? Yeah, well, so in some ways the field has evolved and in some ways it's still the same. You still have to be a doctor. Uh, you still have to look at blood counts and you still have to do the right thing for the person in front of you. So it really is still looking at a CBC, looking for dysplastic changes in somebody who's got an abnormal blood count or a cytopenia. And then it's based still on morphology of the bone marrow. So we don't talk about the, uh, I'm sure you recall the FAB or French American British yeah. classification. Yeah, we don't refer to that so much anymore. Uh, there are updated classifications and updated WHO classifications for it, but it really is still based on the morphology of the bone marrow and the blast count. And uh, the prognosis is very weighted towards the blast count and the cytopenias and the degree of cytopenias. It really is mandatory to do cytogenetics. That still is a, a very important stratification for us. And, and actually, it's more detailed than it was even 10 years ago in terms of the different risk groups with cytogenetics. All of us essentially in North America, or at least in the United States, are doing next-generation sequencing at the time of mm -hmm. MDS diagnosis. It's almost uniform. And right. everybody has slightly different panels. You see a broad array of abnormalities. And that's one of the areas that I think the prognostic systems are trying to work out. How do you incorporate the mutations or the number of mutations or the uh, percentage, the variant allele frequency or VAF percentage of those mutations into the classification? So that's still mm -hmm. a moving target as to whether they have a spliceosome mutation or an ASXL1 or a chromatin modifier or so on. That's evolving, 
and we all still have wall charts that we look at saying, aha, that's where that mutation goes. Yeah. But bit by bit, that's going to become more and more important still right now. It's just like you learn. You still have to do a bone marrow biopsy. You still have to count blasts systematically, and you still have to, to know yeah. whether there's dysplasia. Yeah. So I have to say it, it is interesting because our understanding of MDS has, has evolved over – I mean, uh, 40 years. I uh, I haven't been practicing that long, but but you're right. It sounds like the the, the broadest and most important uh, criteria are still the same. Yeah, they uh, really are, and yeah, I agree with that. Although, because we're getting some targeted therapies, I'm sure we'll talk to this at some point. It's going to become increasingly important to know the mutational landscape and the and the genetics for that individual patient. I wanted to ask you. You, you brought up the topic of sort of alluding to various categories of mutations or findings on NGS. You mentioned spliceosome. Can, can you talk about some of those? Because I think this is uh, important information to get out there. Yeah, I am, but I'm going to keep it a little bit superficial on purpose because I don't know the answer. And I don't think there's really a, there's not a uniform system for how this gets evaluated. Some of the best data uh, comes from Cleveland Clinic and also from Dana-Farber where people have looked back at the patterns of mutations and tried to break them into different classes of mutations, whether they're involved with genes or whether they're with genes involved with DNA splicing, um, like uh, SF3B1 or uh, SRSF2 or ZRSR2, whether they're a chromatin modifier or a cohesin complex. You do occasionally see signaling pathway mutations like a RAS mutation, very rarely a FLIP3 mutation in MDS. And then the big one that's out there uh, that's, very relevant and, and problematic is TP53, which is a significant minority of patients with MDS also and a hard one to deal with. In the Cleveland Clinic classification, or I won't even call it classification in their model, if you have an adverse mutation, usually ASXL1 or some of the other adverse ones, it kind of upgrades you by about one stage. So if you're a intermediate, you may become a, a high risk or if you're a lower risk, you may become intermediate in terms of what may happen to that person if you have adverse mutation. So wait when we're making a decision about prognosis or if we're trying to decide is this somebody where it's bad enough we should really do something or even consider bone marrow transplant in that yeah, select yeah. few who can do it. But I would say it's it's still an evolving field. There's a lot of interest in, right now, classifications according to something called the Revised International Prognostic Scoring System, or the Revised IPSS. And we all go to up-to-date, or we all have a well chart where we kind of plug in the numbers and we get the revised IPSS score. Um, but there is a molecular version of that that's in development, and once that's validated and really out there for use, we're going to have a much better idea about which mutations to plug in and how that might upgrade or downgrade someone's prognosis in a way that's actionable. Wonderful. And so it sounds like there's more to come on that and they'll continue to be. So let me ask you on a practical basis, when you're seeing a new patient, as you're taking their history and sort of looking at them as an individual and looking at their bone marrow and looking at counting blasts, when you're sort of writing your summary, what is the system you're using now? You started talking about it some, and what are the classifications? And I also would love to get a sense of where uh, most of your patients fit in. A lot of uh, papers now are talking about uh, real world. So in the real world, who are you seeing? I I work at the Mayo Clinic, so I don't know if I can be accused of the real world. But well, um, we're a referral center, but we do see a broad array of patients. And so in general, 
somewhere close to two-thirds of patients will have lower risk MDS when they start, and about one-third will have higher risk. And by risk, I mean their blast count might be elevated or they'll have significant cytopenias or adverse cytogenetics. And so we use, like most academic centers, the revised international prognostic scoring system. So I guess I'll back up and answer your question by saying the first thing is I want to know a bit about who that person is when I'm meeting them, what exposures or history they have that could be relevant. Have they been treated for breast cancer or Hodgkin's disease? Did they work with solvents like benzene or with nuclear radiation, which is uh, surprisingly some people have? Whether they've worked with certain chemicals or uh, in, in a farm environment or industrial hydrocarbons or also about family history, there's a little bit of evolving information there. So I'd like to know a little bit about the background uh, just to get a feel for where this may have arisen from and what may happen to that person. So that's the first thing. And I guess that's, I started at the beginning saying you still have to look at the person in front of you and be a real doctor. You still have to have that relationship and know who they are and what their background mm -hmm. is. And that helps a little. They're usually coming to see us. The stereotype is a macrocytic anemia, often with low platelets or sometimes neutropenia. We rarely see circulating blasts in MDS. That's usually only if it's evolving to high-grade MDS or leukemia. So that's not a common thing. And we always look at the peripheral blood smear uh, with our pathologists on Friday mornings at 7, unfortunately, because you can technically make a diagnosis of MDS on the peripheral blood if there's profound dysplasia or overt dysplasia. And really, you know, Pelgrin-Hewitt cells and would be classic or hypogranulated uh, neutrophils or rarely the circulating blasts. But you need to do a bone marrow biopsy to really get at it, and that's where the bulk of the information comes from. So if somebody has borderline cytopenias and you don't have to act upon them, you don't have to necessarily do a bone marrow right up front, although we always do. But the moment they have a cytopenia where it's starting to cause them a symptom or a problem, we really do the marrow to make sure we have all the information. And then it's the degree of the thrombocytopenia, the neutropenia, the anemia that helps in terms of figuring out prognosis. I'll just put a little side note here saying that part of the field is you still have to be an internist and you still have to make sure that somebody isn't bleeding or doesn't have yes. some other cause of anemia. And I've been surprised, it's not common, but I've been surprised a few times by people who have copper deficiency, who have yeah. a, a CBC that mimics MDS or sometimes uh -huh. um, a heavy alcohol history or sometimes certain medications. And so not everybody does this. We typically run a heavy metal screen on people to look and see if there's any other contributor. And we really are looking for that small percentage of patients who have some other explanation before we go ahead and do a bone marrow biopsy and say, yeah, this is MDS. So how absolutely gratifying when you find something like that that's reversible. I know there's I've nothing had, like had... sending them to, uh, to GNC to say take two milligrams of copper every day and <laughs> see if their blood count get better. That always feels good. How wonderful. I did have one patient who responded to pyridoxine. This was years ago when, you know, we talked about a pyridox. Yeah, and it was it was very gratifying. I've had a few patients with B12 deficiency who got better very, very quickly. Well, you know, it's almost, I haven't surveyed this recently, but at one point, almost 10% of my patients had a second cause of anemia, iron deficiency, uh, peptic ulcer disease, polyps. Right. Etc. And so it can be, you still have to look for those other causes when you're embarking on treatment, particularly for anemia. So I want to ask you about this, about another entity, and it's, I think it's very much related, CCUS, clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. What is that? Well, so th that's a phenomenon right now. There's an evolving field of clonal hematopoiesis that we're all going to be learning mm -hmm. more and more about. 
We've actually started a clinic, a specific clinic, started at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. We've begun it here at Mayo Clinic in Florida as well, called our CHIP Clinic for patients who have clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And so we know that uh, individuals acquire myeloid mutations in life at low level, particularly uh, as they age. Uh, by the age of 70, about 20% of people will have detectable mutations in their blood at low level. It's a risk factor for blood cancer. Uh, you can see it after treatment for other cancers, or sometimes they'll pick it up when you're doing a liquid biopsy or for uh, circulating tumor DNA in other cancers. They'll sometimes pick up a myeloid mutation. And CCUS that you refer to, the clonal cytopenia of uncertain significance, is somebody who has a usually mild cytopenia. They have some clonal abnormality with a mutation, but don't have evident dysplasia. And that's a group of patients we're trying to learn more about. There's a national initiative being run from the NIH, from the uh, actually uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, HLBI, called the MDS study. And I'm on a steering committee for that study, and we're participating. And we're trying to see what really happens to patients with MDS. What are the genetics at the population level? What happens with treatments for people with different genetic subgroups and so on? And we've recognized that there's a significant at-risk group who don't quite have MDS or don't meet criteria, have some cytopenias, and may have a clone detected by mutation studies or rarely even cytogenetics. And so that's a person who you don't necessarily jump on to do something to them or for them, but really is at risk of MDS and sometimes other blood cancers. So it's almost like, you know how MDS used to be called pre-leukemia 30, 40 years yeah, ago? Yeah. It's sort of like pre-MDS in a way for some patients. And we're learning about it, honestly. No, I can't help but wonder. I mean, there's a number of people, uh, evidence would suggest, who have very, very occult thyroid cancer. There's men where obviously we're doing, you know, active surveillance for low-grade prostate cancer. Might CCUS or CHIP, is your impression it might be an indolent process? I think that's a great point, by the way. And I'm an ex-fellowship program director when I was at University of Alabama, Birmingham. And, you know, we we always taught the fellows, and we do here at Mayo Clinic as well, that that all that's clonal is not cancer. And so you have to put it in context. And to be cancer, you have to meet the – to be a blood cancer, you have to meet the diagnostic criteria. So I think you're absolutely right. And the large majority of people, even with a CHIP, don't get a blood cancer even though it's a risk factor. So you're right, that's a person where you have to observe closely but not necessarily act. Let me ask you that same question then in MDS. Is MDS uh, a neoplasm? Is MDS a cancer? When your patients ask you that, uh, how do you answer? Yeah, that's a hard conversation. It is a cancer, and it's considered a myeloid neoplasm in the World Health Organization classification. So it really is a blood cancer. And it's a hard concept for some patients who are used to lung cancer or breast cancer. That's an easier concept to grasp or a brain tumor, say. Mm -hmm. To have some low blood counts and to say that's a blood cancer is a little harder of a discussion. It meets all the cancer criteria. There's dysplasia, there's clonality, there's uh, impaired survival, there's progression, there's risk of leukemia, of overt AML. So it meets all the cancer criteria, but it just behaves so differently. And there's such an emphasis on supportive care for people with anemia or thrombocytopenia or even leukopenia that it just takes a different form. And so that first consult for me, that's a 75-minute visit. And we do we, we make the point of saying this is a blood cancer because we want people to know they're facing a real thing sometimes, most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Everybody who gets MDS, Dr. Miller, um, has a shortened survival compared to age match mm -hmm. controls. So it's a real thing.
those first conversations, I think, are so meaningful across the board with what we do. Because it really sets up, first, it's a way to get to know someone well, but and vice versa, and it, and it builds that sense of trust. You were one of the co-authors of an article. You studied 54,953 patients with MDS in the National Cancer Database. I'll read the conclusion. I want to get your view, particularly what's happened since 2013. Basically, it says, in the past decade, uh, overall outcome of MDS did not improve despite the advent of new therapy. It's a sobering kind of finding. Is that your view on that on that decade, basically? And, and what's your view if you were to do this exact same study from 2013 to 2020? Well, so I'm going to start by saying something I tell some of my patients, which is I'm a glass-half-full doctor. We're honest and real with our patients, but we try to be accomplishing things for them uh, when they need treatments or things accomplished for them. So I don't want that to be the same conclusion of the paper we write in the mid-20s, when we go back to that database to see what happened. It is sobering. You're absolutely right. And we don't have good enough therapies for MDS, and we're not able to help as many people as much as we need to. We can, in some patients, improve median survival. We can occasionally cure it with a bone marrow transplant, but there's still such a large focus on supportive care and quality of life that until we've got better disease-modifying treatments, we're going to have to keep that focus on at least maintaining day-to-day life and, and easing the symptom burden and the disease burden for patients. It is frustrating. It was really only 2004 or 2005, approximately, that we had FDA-approved hypomethylating agents for MDS. Yeah. I probably mm-hmm. got the year wrong. It's sort of mid-last decade or mid-two decades ago, 15 years ago. And so mm-hmm. until then, you know, we had some speculative studies and some suggestions, but we didn't really have a path forward. Even still, azacitidine for advanced MDS, for higher-risk disease, it improves median survival significantly, but the percentage who truly respond and get a remission is still low in the range of 20% or less. Not everybody responds to it. Not everybody tolerates it. And it's been frustrating because you have to give three to six months of treatment before you really know if it's even working because it makes everything a little worse before it gets better. You're right. The conclusion is sobering and a little frustrating. But we do have leads going forward, partly through the evolving molecular work and partly through just plain good old drug development where there's a suggestion of things that may impact on outcomes and some studies launching to really study that and see if we can do better. So I think we're going to say something different 10 years from now. Which would be great and really something to look forward to. I think I I did share with you and I'm going to share with the listeners as well, but uh, my wife was treated for MDS evolving into acute leukemia almost 21 years ago, and thankfully as well. So there are people who get get through this, but it is still such a, such a profoundly devastating disease. So all of these advances now are exciting ones. Yeah, well, I'm sorry you know about that firsthand, but I'm glad to hear that story. I'd like to try to do that looking at supportive care, then looking at low-risk MDS, and then looking at high-risk MDS, so that we're really learning as much as we can from you. In supportive care, what are the things that have been exciting for you that you think have made a difference for our patients? Well, there's several, really. The most common symptom of MDS is an anemia. That's the Mm -hmm. typical and most common presentation. You can have any cytopenia or combination of it, but that's the most common. And uh, once you've corrected for any metabolic factors, iron deficiency or copper or anything else that could be contributing or B12, pyridoxine, as you mentioned, then you're deciding when to intervene to try to address the anemia because that's a day-to-day quality of life issue for patients. 
We know that if the erythropoietin level is less than 200, especially, or even up to 500, that somewhere in the range of 30 to 40% of patients will respond to uh, ESA therapy with or without Neupogen. So that's useful, not for everybody, but useful. There is a significant minority of patients whose erythropoietin level is already high, so they're not going to benefit from it. Recently, the FDA approved a, a new medication called Lisbatercept that uh, acts through a non-erythropoietin signaling pathway to improve uh, maturation of late erythrocytes and, and can induce a, an important transfusion-independent meaningful response in 30 to 40% of patients who either had been on an ESA and it had failed or weren't eligible for it because they had a high EPO level. So that's encouraging that we have another option. Right now, that's been studied and approved if you have ringed sideroblasts. So this goes back to something we talked about before. You still have to look at the bone marrow and see are there more than 15% ringed sideroblasts because that's right. the FDA approval. That's, that's the group where it really seems to work so far. But it's encouraging to know that there's an option because otherwise you're transfusing people. And, well... You know, that's been really tricky these days. I'm sure we'll come to COVID-19 later, but that's tricky these days because blood banks are depleted. It's hard to get two people two units of blood. There's a national movement. There are different philosophies on this, but there's a national movement to run people at lower hemoglobins to protect the blood supply. At the same mm -hmm. time, that's validated in the hospital, but not in the ambulatory setting where typically older patients with MDS, they have anemia. They're symptomatic. It impairs their functional ability to be anemic. And so then we're in a restricted blood environment or trying to uh, choose wisely when we're transfusing. And then you have patients who are kind of on this treadmill where they're tethered to the clinic for follow-up CBCs and transfusion support. So anything that helps with that, I think, is, is useful and meaningful for them. I'm going to tell you something that's uh, just to, to declare it's not FDA approved for this indication. It is for other indications. But an area where I've had a favorable experience is in thrombocytopenia with L-trombopag or Promacta is the trade name, right. where mm -hmm. there's some small randomized studies showing that in lower risk disease, it seems safe. We don't see a significant risk of disease transformation to AML. And you can see a significant number of patients, up to half, who may mm -hmm. get their platelets into a safer zone of 30 or higher with L-trombopag. And right. uh, that's not always attainable for my patients. It depends on their insurance and so on. But that's been extremely helpful in people who are symptomatic with thrombocytopenia and are in platelet transfusions because that, that's even more dire than red cell transfusions when they're coming so often for platelets. So those are some helpful things. We see a lot of neutropenia, but we don't have as many difficulties managing neutropenic patients just because we don't see infections quite as often as you as you would after chemotherapy. These are just, you know, steady state neutropenia, so to speak, and they're not uh, natoring after a treatment, so they're less likely to get fever. And a lot of people will tolerate neutropenia as long as that they're taught properly about when to call and when to seek care with a fever. So that's a little less of an issue for us. All right. Let me ask you about low-risk MDS, which you were saying is two-thirds of your patients. For those that need treatment, what are some of the things uh, some of the things that have been exciting that may be game changers? Well, we need more game changers. I'll start by saying that. We've talked just about addressing the cytopenia with growth factor support or novel growth factors such as lisbatercept, which mm -hmm. recently FDA approved. But there are some opportunities to do more. Uh, one of the most common abnormalities in MDS is a 5Q deletion. Mm -hmm. And it's people will forget this. Revlimid or lenalidomide 
is used so frequently in myeloma, but the very first study in FDA approval was in MDS with a deletion 5Q. So that's a really important bit of information to have because lenalidomide can get about two-thirds of people transfusion independent. So I wouldn't say it's new, and it's exciting only in that it works for a good number of people, and you're always happy when you have that opportunity to help with it. I've even had patients who were transfusion-dependent and iron-overloaded where you gave them lenalidomide. They had such a good response, you could do phlebotomy to try to remove iron. So it can be really useful for some patients. One of the other areas, we will then sometimes resort to a hypomethylating agent, azocytidine typically, if they have pancytopenia, transfusion-dependent, lower-risk MDS. Lower risk meaning low blast count and not very adverse cytogenetics. And the problem is that we're not exactly sure if it improves long-term survival. It's cumbersome to be on subcutaneous or IV azocytidine or even decytamine every four weeks. And we're hopeful that there will be some oral hypomethylating agents come along in the near future that might, first of all, be helpful for patients. And second of all, even though this is not fully validated yet, there's emerging information that short courses, like three days or five-day courses of, uh, of azacytidine, might work just as well and be easier for a patient to tolerate. So that, that might at least help make the treatment more palatable and easier to get. Uh, but yeah. we really do need better therapies in that situation. And then finally, let me ask you about the high-risk patients. I mean, obviously, one strategy has been the demethylating agents. I've looked at some of the literature. It looks like combinations are being tested. So, again, what are some of the drugs you've been excited about? What are some of the combinations? Well, there's some very exciting ones on the horizon. So, again, I'm going to just disclose that I'm an investigator on some of those and also that these are not yet FDA approved. But there are some exciting combinations on the horizon. We've been participating in a study of an intravenous agent that targets really protein homeostasis, kind of like bortezomib mm-hmm. does in myeloma, but maybe more upstream uh, by targeting how uh, the protein ubiquination and protein turnover or protein homeostasis. So there's a drug called Pevanetostat, and we've participated in a clinical trial that's accrued and completed, and we're going to wait for results to see if adding that to azacytidine improves overall survival. We're hopeful, but we have to wait for the phase three results on that. There were some very exciting data uh, presented recently at ASH, American Society of Hematology meetings, about adding a, a CD47 antibody in AML that we may have an opportunity to adapt to MDS in the future. There was some pilot information about venetoclax, which is really becoming prominently used in older patients with AML and in CLL. If somebody has refractory MDS, sometimes, especially if their blast count is up, venetoclax can help induce remission. And there are some more speculative studies that are exciting, but still speculative, adding uh, checkpoint inhibitors to uh, to the recipe with azacytidine, such as a TIM3 inhibitor or some others, to see if there's a role for altering the immune landscape to try to improve outcomes. So it's one of the first times in a while I can say that there are leads, that there's hope, and that we're really looking forward to the future to see if any of these can really make an impact, because I think they're going to help, and at least I'm hoping they're going to help. We've had a great discussion. We've talked about supportive care, low-risk MDS, high-risk MDS. Who needs a bone marrow transplant? How do you make that decision? And from a, a very broad perspective, how successful or not successful is uh, is transplant in this setting? Yeah, great question. It's been studied in several different ways. So it's really the only curative therapy for MDS. 
and the cure rate, I'll just give you some, some very general numbers, is probably in the range of 40%. That's a number that we typically quote a patient. It's not as good as we'd like. We, uh, just in round numbers, somewhere around 20-ish percent, and in some studies a little higher, may die from some consequence of the transplant, whether it's graft-versus-host disease or uh, infection. So the non-relapse mortality is significant. We know that of the people who survive it, about half are cured and half are not. So it's a very frustrating area because it's curative, but it's elusive sometimes. I'm a transplanter also. We're an active transplant center, and it's one of the questions we always ask ourselves. The decision analyses have supported it strongly if you've got higher risk disease and you're a transplant candidate. Now, sometimes beauty is in the eye of the beholder. To be a transplant candidate means you have to be fit enough or have a donor or have the right caregiver or, unfortunately, sometimes the right insurance. And so I do think that for everybody under the age of 75, that should be part of a discussion. And there should be a very low threshold, even if it's a long shot, that that patient be seen by a transplant physician to at least know the opportunity was there or wasn't there, and they have that discussion. It's only a minority who actually get worked up and go to transplant. It's something we're working on to try to make it more amenable or available, but it is a frustrating area. And so um, we're also we, we're aware the relapse rates are high, and we're trying to come up with better maintenance strategies after transplant to maintain remission and, and to try to improve the cure fraction. So I think the outcomes, in fact, I know the outcomes are quietly getting better overall for transplant for myeloid malignancy, if you look at the CIBMTR data, but not as good as we need them to be. And so my advice is at least have people with intermediate or high-risk disease screened for transplants. And it's not clear whether you need to treat MDS with azacytidine before transplant or not if you're going to do one. We all on the transplant side like to have people have their blast count down. Some studies suggest that some azacytidine beforehand may be helpful, but it's not mandated. And so it's a uh, really an interaction that you have with the patient in a transplant center at the beginning when you're thinking of systemic uh, therapy like azacytidine or decytabine. And uh, I alluded to this, but the decision analyses support doing it for higher risk disease, and they really don't support doing it early for low risk disease. If someone's going to live five years or possibly longer with MDS, it doesn't really make sense to take the risk of transplant-related mortality up front because yeah. there's a substantial one-year mortality. And so it's only if somebody has intermediate or especially higher-risk features that the decision analyses support doing that. In younger patients, we use myeloblative conditioning. In older patients, typically reduced-intensity conditioning. But that's a patient-by-patient -patient decision at the transplant center. So it's out there. We'd really like to make it more available for more patients. And we also have to try and find better ways to prevent relapse afterwards. So I want to ask you about a very, a very timely topic, uh, COVID-19, and how has the pandemic affected how you take care of patients with MDS? It's affected our hematology practice profoundly. We are not in a high COVID area here in North Florida, uh, nor are they at the other Mayo Clinic cancer center sites in, in Rochester, Minnesota, or Phoenix. And so we've had many patients in the hospital, but we've not had an inundation like New York or New Orleans or Detroit or some other cities where it's been really very difficult and, and difficult to watch from afar. Well, I'm a little bit privileged to work at an institution that can do real-time COVID-19 testing. And so we advocate for that in anybody. We're starting therapy. We actually test for the virus before we start them on systemic therapy. Our patients are generally immunosuppressed with leukopenia and neutropenia, so they are counseled about following CDC and state guidelines and wearing a mask. We're considering not 
starting therapy for a while, but we just can't hold out for too long for too many patients. And so after a brief pause, we're finding we're having to treat patients because they have these diseases that mandate it. It's tricky in the blood bank. I mentioned this earlier, but there's a national shortage of blood donation, as you'd expect. And so people who are ambulatory on transfusion support, getting two units every two weeks or four weeks, we're now restricting to one unit unless they have really severe symptoms or have some comorbidity. And that's impacting quality of life for our patients, so that's problematic. I have had the experience of some of my patients getting the virus and dying from it with neutropenia. I've had others do okay. I don't have the experience of some of the hematologists in New York or, or the other centers. And so I know they're struggling. Uh, I can tell from friends that that's, that's a real issue with leukemia and with MDS. And we're just going to have to learn more and more about it as we go forward. Hopefully, we will start to have therapies for the virus that can help as well. So it's, it's a real issue. I want to go back to the topic of uh, of supportive care. What would comprise really a good team of caretakers for patients with MDS? Well, I'll answer that by saying that I run a very high Starbucks bill. And um, <laughs> I end up buying a lot of lattes and giving out a lot of Starbucks cards for people because it really takes a big team and a lot of help to look after MDS. This is the high-intensity hematology that requires really a nurse specialist, an advanced practice provider, dedicated physician. Uh, we have a whole team involved with that. We work extremely closely with our blood bank. I'm at a center where we can give outpatient transfusions in two different locations seven days a week. We're built for that, but that's exceptional. In the community, it's usually a Monday to Friday thing. It's hard to manage. It's Transfusions are really a money loser in practice, and so it has to be done in a thoughtful way and it's often done in coordination with a local transfusion center or an emergency room or a local hospital if you're not at, a, at an academic center, which is really hard for the practitioner and for the patient. So that team really has to have a nurse specialist who's tracking CBCs, who knows that patient and knows what their threshold is. It's not a seven-gram, one-size-fits-all threshold in the outpatient ambulatory setting. It really has to be individualized. I have some patients who need packed red blood cells and their hemoglobin hits less than 8.5 because they've got advanced coronary disease or CHF. And so you do need a team and therefore you, you have to be really kind to your colleagues and grateful for their help when you're doing this. And it's a huge resource need and use and the patients benefit from it and they need it. I'm going to just add parenthetically uh, one area of supportive care that we didn't talk about and I'll touch on quickly is on iron chelation. And I think the country is a little bit split on this. There are believers and non-believers. For the first time, uh, about 18 months ago, we got some prospective data that suggested some patients may have better outcomes if they have advanced, uh, if they have MDS and they're transfusion dependent and they have um, secondary hemosiderosis with elevated ferritin levels. We uh, at our institution do tend to chelate with oral iron chelators with deferrocyrox typically. Not all centers do that. But it matters to track the transfusion frequency and the ferritin levels of your patients. Helps you make decisions for them, helps in prognosis, and frankly even helps if you're trying to cure somebody so that they don't get too iron overloaded before you transplant them. So that's an important part of supportive care, and that's something that's built in in our team and our algorithms when we're following people. Thank you. This is Dr. Ken Miller. Again, I'm a volunteer with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. There's been a wonderful session today with Dr. James Ferran, who is an associate professor at the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center in Jacksonville. Uh, James, thank you so much. This was a wonderful discussion. 
Thank you very much for the invitation, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. I would love that. I'd like to thank you all for listening to this informative podcast. For more information on MDS resources, please visit www.lls.org slash MDS. And for a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, including webinars on myelodysplastic syndromes and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.